Welcome aboard, Captain. Welcome back to the Star Trek Minute, the semi-daily podcast where we talk about and celebrate Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, one minute at a time. I'm one of your co-hosts, David Stoker. And I'm your other co-host, Chris LaSalle. Were you pausing there for dramatic effect there, Chris? I don't know. I never seem to know my own name. I have to spit it out. It's a problem for me. <laughs> and we are once again joined by the Sullivan Brothers, Paul Sullivan from Sully Baseball Podcast. That's me. And Ted Sullivan, co-executive producer and writer for Star Trek Discovery. Welcome, guys. Thanks very much for having us. Really appreciate I it. I love that I get billed over Ted. He's the executive producer and writer of Star Trek, but, or the Star Trek Minute, but that's, uh, I guess it's alphabetical. There you go. Exactly. We try to keep things fair here. <laughs> uh, so we are moving on to minute number 44, and this minute starts with the lone cleaning crew member watching the Enterprise back out past the cafeteria windows and ends with the computer saying, warning, secure space doors, warning. I love that this guy, the 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 guy who's cleaning up the the tables there, uh, let's just call him Chuck. Uh, Chuck is there, and he kind of is he's looking up, and he's seeing the Enterprise. He's backing up, and you know there's a part of him is is like, okay, do I call someone? I mean, I'm just supposed to be cleaning up this leftover lasagna. I didn't think I would be have to report a mutiny or a theft. This is ab- above my pay grade by many degrees right now. Well, it's worse than that. If that ship slams into the wall, I, I have to imagine that does the, uh, massive damage. I mean, the loss of life would be and actually, horrendous. Ted, you, there's a thing. You, you just reminded me of something, Ted. Oh, yeah. That when they went into space dock, they were brought in by like a tractor beam. They said like, oh, enjoy the ride. So you know, that was exactly. kind of like flying into this oh, thing right. is something they didn't even trust freaking Sulu to do. And so now Sulu has to back out of it, you know, that, yeah, this must be, this must be really, really awful. Oh, yeah. It's not even, not even a straight line. This isn't like he's just putting in reverse. You can see the dramatic arc that the Enterprise takes. So he's, he's actually maneuvering the Enterprise out. That's, that's got to be no small thing. Well, remember, he's Sulu. Well, that's true. (laughs) But, you know, Dave, it's funny. Are you saying that because you noticed? Because I noticed, never noticed before, but watching this minute, you know, over and over again, you can see the Enterprise kind of swerve yeah. a little bit when they we get the yeah. reverse, reverse shot. It's kind of moving away from us. You can actually see it adjust itself. I'm like, oh, wow, that's like, you know, I can't put my car in reverse down the driveway <laughs> without, you know, almost hitting the mailbox. So this you know, Sulu's got his <laughs> – it would be so funny. You saw him like, you know – Leaning backwards over a seat. They have a little, <laughs> or if they had the they beeping side mirrors the on the side of the bridge here. Hold on, man. <laughs> Excelsior up. may be closer than it appears. So. We also have another classic Sulu line: "One minute to space doors." Which wow. I just, I every line when I was right after this movie, I went to my first Star Trek convention, and I waited in line for like an hour to meet. Uh, George and I was so so excited. I, I was like trembling when, I, but this is of course way way before cell phones or anything like that. So I have no photographic evidence of anything. I just I just remember being so excited to shake his hand, and then he was like, "Do you want an autograph?" And I went, <laughs> I, "I I 
don't I, I, I didn't have any money to buy a, a picture because I had just bought a uh, which I still have um, the captain bars uh, from uh, Wrath of Khan in this movie that because I wanted to make a uniform with those um, so I didn't have any money to buy an autograph so I just waited in line to shake his hand yeah well that's that's to me I I much rather do that like you know when I have met famous people I'd much rather say hi how are you thank you then like I don't need an autograph I don't need to prove it to other people I did it I saw it that you know, so I think you 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 did the right thing there, Ted. You just said you said you said hi to George, and there you go. Hey, I want to go back to um, the the restaurant there before we totally leave it, because in a previous minute, you guys were talking about how you saw uh, Grace Lee Whitney was in there, and she stands up and she looks at the Enterprise and shakes her head. Yep. And in the end credits, it doesn't say Janice Rand, Grace Lee Whitney. It says like woman in restaurant or woman in cafeteria. It was something really kind of, yeah. you know, not very dignified credit yeah. that they gave her. But I think you have to remember that when this film came out, this was before like IMDb, before Ain't It Cool News or all this other stuff that you'd be able to learn stuff. So for the fans, wait, was that Grace Lee Whitney? Was the woman in the restaurant Grace Lee Whitney? And then you read the end credits, woman in the restaurant was Grace Lee Whitney. Uh, and if it had said Janice Rand and you had missed that moment where she just stands up and shakes her head or you didn't put two and two together, you read the end credits and go, wait a minute, where the hell was Janice Rand? Did I miss where Rand was? And then you start thinking, was she the waitress with the lights around her dress? Was she like, was she some other weird part? Was she the... Oh, that would have been so sad. Yeah, the... How Imagine if that really was Janice Rand, like she's serving McCoy <laughs> drinks at the worst bar yeah, yeah. On Earth. Long time no see, Doctor, oh. since I was written out of season one, you know. But, uh, oh. but yeah, so I think that was like, wait a minute, that was, was the woman in the room? Was that Rand? Was that Rand? And then you sort of see, like, you know, Grace, if you know Grace Lee Whitney is, then you get a nice little charge. And if not, it was just a woman in the, it was just a woman in the cafeteria. So I think it's just that that made sense for 1984, as opposed to now, you know, there'll be Easter eggs here. You know, look at this. And there'll be an end scene where Janice Rand is, has her own ship or something. I like it. I like it. It's for those, yeah, the casual viewer or the, uh, yeah, the, the, the Trekkie wannabes. Well, well, yeah, it's, it's for the hardcore Trek fan. Um, I mean, that's one thing we try to do on the show, too, is... If you if you know Star Trek really really well, there will be little nods that you'll go like, "Oh, I know what that is." Uh, and if you don't know it, you'll be like, "Oh, that was cool. I don't know what that was." So that this is one of those nice little moments, you know that that moment. Um, but this sequence too, I, I do want to say, if you if you're a young first time viewer of this, watching it on your phone, which. Uh, I'm sure you'd be watching saying, I don't understand why people would like this or this is boring or whatever, but it, it's hard to explain. But in 1984, sitting in this theater, this was such a thrilling sequence and the line after line, like McCoy coming up and going, are you just going to walk through them? And then the <laughs> amazing look that Shatner gives DeForest and he just goes, calm yourself, doctor. Like, it, there's so much, we don't know, they didn't front load the information, so we don't know what the hell they're going to do. 
So that's cool. There's some mystery. We're we're basically McCoy in this scene because yep. we're we're playing catch up, and there's that confidence of of uh, Shatner. I mean, this is the one scene that you could the sequence that you could probably say is a really well constructed, edited sequence in this movie because a lot of this movie is is edited like with a mm. meat cleaver and certainly shot like. Someone who had never held a camera before. I think you see. But, the, I think uh, you see the clapper in a couple of shots too. Like, uh, yeah. take the eight, oh god, we forgot to cut that out. Okay, fine. But there's just in this minute we set up the confidence that Kirk has and everything else, and then there's a rug pull in the next minute where it's all completely undermined. But it's there. There. These were the um, huge moments that got giant laughs and big cheers in the movie uh, and they're basically character moments, which is so unique and positively quaint in an era where, you know, I, I can watch a movie like Guardians of the Galaxy 2 and I, or the Lego movie and I, have, I, I start to have a nosebleed because mm. there's so much stuff happening and people yelling and things bouncing around. I'm like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be looking at, who I'm supposed to be listening to, or what I'm supposed to be feeling, but you're, they, this sequence perfectly guides you through every moment and builds to every dramatic moment, every comedic moment, and every thrilling moment. And it's, it's, it's really, really well done. Hey, Ted, do you remember when we saw this at, uh, in Framingham that uh, two of the biggest laughs that I remembered in this were in scenes before this, and one was when in the scene, the, the, the cantina scene, when... Uh, McCoy tries to give a nerve pinch to the security it's, guard. It's an amazing That got a huge laugh. <laughs> it's an amazing I, The biggest laugh, other than, you know, Final Kill You Later, later on in the film, that got a huge laugh. But also, when Kirk comes in to visit McCoy when he's been arrested, and he, yeah. how many fingers <laughs> went home? Oh, fingers so, a house laugh. Just got a huge house <laughs> laugh. That... And, and, and in that same season, it's, that, guys, it's his revenge for all those arguments he lost. I mean, it's because it's a character-based comedy, yeah. and that's—I think you're right. This is this is about character, and this is about, you know, as I had mentioned in the previous minute, this whole scene is about. All right, we're really going to do this. We're really, you know, once they once they turn the key and start the gas on the Enterprise, there's no turning back, and so there we're going to get you, Spock. We left you on the planet. We ended Ratha Khan. We're coming to get you. And that's what the whole subtext of this entire scene is, which makes it so much more exciting than, you know, every Transformer film put together. And, and, and the music again, I mean, the James Horner is just killing it here. I mean, the thing about James Horner is he does what he does. He's kind of like... Bruce Springsteen, where it's like you, you, you kind of, if you like Bruce Springsteen, you really like Bruce Springsteen. If you don't, he's not going to give you a lot of other choices to kind of like about him. Like, yeah, that's his thing, and that's what he does. I mean, you can listen to James Horner's various soundtracks. This, you know, the the two Star Trek ones and Aliens and Willow. Willow. They they do a lot. <laughs> they, he he um, pays homage to himself a lot, but yes, it's. <laughs> You, but it's beautiful and in this sequence especially if you watch this sequence without music it's boring as hell uh, it, it would just sit there right. it would just sit there but but it feels like i keep saying horatio hornblower because those ships moved slowly and they were just bouncing up and down and they're you know but it, it 
it feels exciting because there's this soundtrack that goes along with it and really, really carries you through in a way that people like always talk about John Williams and rightfully so, but James Horner really kills it in these two movies. Yeah, I'm going to give a shout out to another movie by minute podcast, but I was a guest on the Aliens podcast and Aliens is another film that uh, James Horner did the music for. And you you equated him with Bruce Springsteen. On that show, I equated him with the Ramones. I said, the Ramones play like the same five chords every song they do, <laughs> but it's awesome. So you know exactly what you're getting with the Ramones. It's not like, oh, did you hear the Ramones did a yeah. ballad? No, you know exactly what you're getting with the Ramones. You know exactly what you're getting with James Horner. And if, you're po- if you need it for Cocoon, you need it for Willow or whatever, he's going to do it. And, and to give James Horner... Do he did do Glory, which was a lot different and a lot more complicated than this. And he did do I love his score for Field of Dreams. But yeah, yeah. Then later he did what Apollo thirteen and uh, Braveheart and the hell if I can tell those two scores apart. But they do they do the job though. They do the job. But I also but I, I do. <laughs> but here's another thing. He does something else in this in this movie, which is the. The Vulcan theme, which kind of builds on the Spock theme from Wrath of Khan with Sarek uh, and Kirk in that beautiful mm-hmm. scene, really uh, um, kind of spacey and ethereal. And we revisit again in, in a different type of way uh, at the end of the movie when they merge the Katra with his body. And then the Klingons theme, which is... Jerry Goldsmith obviously created an iconic sound for the Klingons. He created a different theme for the Klingons here that is these war mm-hmm. drums and their and horns and and it's later you know with Krug it's it's all awesome and those are not normal James Horner sounds and I think uh, this may be one of his more compelling and yeah. interesting yeah. soundtracks that he's done because he really pushes himself and goes other areas which is great. So I have, I have a question for Ted. Mm-hmm. Ted is, is a writer for Star Trek. Uh, is there a it, space doors? Is that the best, the best name you can come up with, or the worst name you can come up with for these? Uh, I, in in a lot of ways, I think it's the most Star Trek name you can come up with. I mean, like, <laughs> although I mean that's not really fair. I mean, I, what I love is that they're not called. Um, you know, airways in in Star Trek they're called Jeffrey's tubes. You know, like or or, or docks. You know, they're Jeffrey's tubes. I, yeah. I I like that they're called nacelles. I like. I mean, there's. I I don't know. Like, I I completely agree that falls back into the uh, the Harv Bennett world where it's like it's good enough. Let's move on. We're making TV. <laughs> and uh, you know, there, there's it's too bad because Nick Meyer raised the level uh in in wrath of khan uh harv he wouldn't come back for this movie because he thought it undermined uh wrath of khan right uh which you know i passionately disagree with because of of what kirk loses in the story which i think i said last minute um you know he loses both his son and his ship so there's huge sacrifice uh so i don't think it undermines wrath of khan um, and I, 
it, it, it really it really does feel like a TV show. But like I said last minute, that's what I love about this. And Space Doors, boy, does that feel like a TV show. That feels like as like you're on the set or you're not even on the set. Because it's 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 a uh, it's an ADR line that they drop in, so you know they're probably just sitting there, and probably no one was around, not even a second unit director. It was just a sound engineer and some person. Space doors are closed. You know, it's just like <laughs> space door. Yeah, I don't know. Call it space, space floor. It's space door. He's got a space crop. What do you want from me? What I'll say is this though. Okay, you defended the indefensible. It's my turn to defend the indefensible. <laughs> I'm sure there are doors that lead to docks, lead to engineering, and these are the doors that lead to space. So maybe it's like if they got to give it a name like that. It's like, you know, I have a garage door. I'm in my house in Pasadena. I'm just looking out the window. There's my garage door. I don't call it. Yeah, but you don't, you don't call it an air door. You like because it opens door. up, and you know you don't call it an, <laughs> an atmosphere door. Like it, it, but it just, goes out. You could call I an outside door. That's that's my outside door. Yeah, that's my. I'm outside. going through my outside door now. All right, yeah. I tried. I tried. I did my best. I did my. That was that was my best. You know, effort. You it just sounds like. I, I just hear space balls whenever someone says space doors. Like it just feels like that cheap. Uh. You know, what I think of Ted. You, I, that if you've seen the film Modern Romance, the Albert Brooks film Modern Romance, and there's the scene where they're doing ADR work on a cheesy sci-fi film, and and Albert Brooks is the editor, asks the sound engineer, well, "What do you think that floor is? It's cement." But in the context of the movie, what do you think? It's on a spaceship. What do you think it's made of? I don't know. Space floor. <laughs> so there you go. Space door. Space floor. There you go. That was a long way to go. go. I'll buy a it. long way to go for that reference. So, do us a favor, Ted. Try, try, do us a favor and try and sneak space doors into Discovery for us. <laughs> so, I just want to be clear: you're trying to get me fired. <laughs> <laughs> just want to be clear. So we've determined I, I, I that. Trying, right? I'm trying. <laughs> yeah, that's that's good. Okay, you know what? I'm sh- there are a lot of people on Twitter that would applaud you. So. <laughs> All right, we we gotta we gotta we, we we need to we need to shift gears a little bit because this minute is as a has a moment in it too. This is the uh, the debut of the bridge of the Excelsior. Okay, don't what I if we could skip a minute, this would be the portion I would skip. Oh, this is the worst think... looking bridge I have ever seen. Oh, I, I it is with, with it, without a doubt the worst looking sci fi bridge. Ever, because it is nothing like a sci-fi bridge. Well, I can just say it's between this and the Lost Saucer, the Sid and Marty Croft show. That's the only time I've seen a bridge less convincing than this. If if they told me they put a no, I, 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 Lost Saucer had better lighting. Lost Saucer had better lighting. I'm telling you, that's true. And and it also had Jim Neighbors and Ruth Buzzy. So, um, but you know, if you had told me that this was actually shot with, where we had the Mego Toys Ten, we had the Star Trek bridge. If you told me that they were doing this Land of the Lost style, like they were in front of a chroma key, and they they put the camera in Armigo uh, uh, <laughs> Enterprise Bridge, where there's the elevator which you hit, and the car spins around quickly, and it acts also as the transporter. That toy we used to have looks better than this Excelsior Bridge. Oh, let's which... just let's break down a couple of things right here. One, we have uh, mirror lights on either side, which I, I don't know why you would do that. Where red alert, yellow alert, normal, 
Okay. Nope. Stand by. What an auxiliary. What on earth? I get red alert. I get normal alert. I even get, and I get yellow alert. Normal makes me a little weirded out, but okay. But stand by. Not sure what that means. An auxiliary. Like, is that part of their stereo? Is that for them to plug in? Like, do they have an eight track that they're plugged into? <laughs> then look at, so that's one of the more absurd things I've ever seen. Uh, it also looks like it's made out of like cardboard. There's no way to it. And then look at those chairs with the, yeah. the green chairs. They, so oh, they thought, geez. you know what yes. would make this good is a sickly green glow. Why <laughs> would you have your light underneath the chair so that you're sweating underneath your chair i mean i don't understand what's going on the, the amount of energy that so every chair on the bridge on this massive bridge uh has a green light underneath it to make everyone look like they're sick well that's also if you drop something on your chair it's already lit you can find it very easily that's the only thing i can think of but yeah you have the people standing around and it's it's just wide open this really looks like <laughs> something that you would see on a like a uh, local television or Knott's Berry farm like waiting <laughs> like like you can go and get your picture taken at it, it, it it's, i mean this is one of those where again it's clear that nimoy had either no control or just was so in over his head in this one which is amazing because in the next one he is on fire it, it looks like a I mean, it looks like a movie. This this is, um, I, I've seen local theater productions with higher production value than this. I, I don't understand what I'm looking at. There's carpet on on the floor. When we we did Fiddler on the we did Fiddler on the Roof in 1987 in Waltham, Massachusetts, and our town set for Fiddler on the Roof was more convincing than this set of the Excelsior. I'll go on. I'll say that. I'll go on. I, I mean, everything about this is the worst thing I've ever seen. I mean, it's it's uh, the worst thing I've ever seen. It's it's embarrassing. It's shame. like Nimoy should have just showed up onto the set and said, "Nope, we're going to shut it down, guys." I just I, I we we gotta. I know that we only have sixteen million dollars to do this movie. I I know that we put Walter in that pink weird Quaker outfit, but <laughs> I, I put my foot down at this. This is not happening. We are not. We're not doing this, and yet. When I was a kid, watching uh, the captain and then watching the insanely awesome Miguel Ferrer, who apparently you have to be smarmy to serve on the Excelsior, uh, and that they're just like, man, we we just rock. We're just going to crush them. And that it, there's a bit of that '80s. They're the um, jocks, and the Enterprise are the nerds. And they're the underdogs, and somehow they've taken Kirk by by doing this with these two guys, uh, making them be uh, the underdogs, which is such a cool little thing to do. And it's a subtle thing, but it, it's very '80s. It's very mid '80s to have, you know, jocks versus nerds, and that's what this kind of feels like. And that's why it works, despite everything you see on the screen. Would it be well if they got Billy Zabka to play <laughs> yeah. the? Uh the helmsman there that'd be pretty why would you why would you go billy zabka over miguel ferrer well, no, no, no i mean but to go if you're going by the 80s jock clearly 
clearly <laughs> Miguel Ferrer makes everything better. The late, the late great Miguel Ferrer. By the way, to, to tell you guys just quickly um, how often when Ted and I were growing up, how often we watched Star Trek Three, which we watched an enormous number of times. When I when we saw RoboCop for the first time, I said, "Oh, it's the helmsman from the Excelsior!" Like they didn't even didn't even stop this oh wait where have i seen that guy no it's the helmsman for the excelsior he's my friend you know it's like he and <laughs> by the way i'm just I'm, I'm gonna just rant for a second about what uh <laughs> about this from a from a writing a star trek discovery standpoint which is first of all the helmsman now because i'm assuming he's a helmsman right that's what he's listed as miguel ferrer's listed as helmsman so they've swapped the helm to this side so that that's kind of breaking with canon. The, can, the helmsman yep. is never on this side. Uh, that's where ops or navigation in TOS, but it becomes mm. ops, and because it, why would you have a helmsman and a navigation? It doesn't really make any sense. But anyways, so they've swapped that. And from another, because I get slammed, <laughs> we all get slammed on on Discovery all the time for well, why doesn't it look like a 1967 show? It's like well because it's not a 1967 show, and we're you know, and there are different classes of starships, and they all can look different. This apparently is the garbage class, um, but <laughs> it's the romper room class here. <laughs> but you know, what what drives me crazy is fans have always picked and uh, chosen which part of canon they want to um, hold on to. Like this, this is how we were introduced to Excelsior. the The bird of prey is how we were introduced to the bird of prey, the Klingon bird of prey. And then in four, they just went, ah, screw it. These sets look horrible. So, I mean, obviously there wasn't the Excelsior in that one, but there was a Bird of Prey. They threw that bridge out and they made a way cooler one. And then when it was time for the Excelsior to return in uh, Star Trek VI, I love that bridge. It's a beautiful bridge. It's a beautiful bridge. Yeah, And they just, because they had the time, the resources, they could go, hey, you know what? Maybe we should spend more than 12 minutes and fourteen ninety five at a dollar store to put together a set, and it, it, it's it's a bit of a rant of mine right now. I know, but like when I look at this set, I go, guys, would, would should we keep this as canon or should we make it better? So uh, it, 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 this is a scene that now has particular uh, meaning to me as someone who is dealing with this all the time. Um, but I am. I, I didn't notice it when I was story. a kid. I didn't look at this and go, "Wow, that set looks crappy." I w- I just was caught up in the, in the performances of these two guys who I knew instantly. Mm-hmm. Again, very little screen time, but they're the bad guys in this in this plot line, and they're totally wrong. Yeah. We have to know they're dicks right off the bat, and they both are. And it's great. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll give I'll give one one defense of the indefensible here for Excelsior. This kind of, uh, as as Star Trek has has evolved right through all the different series and the films up until till Discovery, this kind of sets the stage a bit for the really big bridge that's not, you know, there's it's wide open and there's room to walk around. Where you know the Enterprise bridge, I love and would never change yeah. a thing, but it's definitely got its mm-hmm. kind of. Uh, it's cozy, right? This one's much more spread well, out. There's a lot more things that can be done. This just looks like a room, though. This just looks like they, <laughs> they found a room in a hotel, and they just said, okay, slap a couple chairs, let's make a desk here. At least, like, when you look at, like, the Enterprise from, uh, you know, Next Generation, it's big, but it has character to it. 
you look at the you know the bridge from Voyager, or you look at the even the the when we see eventually the new Enterprise at the end of this movie, the beginning of the next one, uh, end of four, uh, the end of next one, end of four, beginning of five, it's bigger, but it has yeah. character to it. This has zero character to it. Yeah, you said you said Hojo's yeah. before, Paul. This is this is Hojo's. No, this looks like the business center yeah. at a Holiday Inn Express. <laughs> well, this also strikes me as this was may have been. I don't know where this was in the shoot, but this strikes me as like, Chris, we got to build that set too. Do you want use those panels from that? Just put it over there. It's only three shots. Lay down some uh, some chairs. Make them look futuristic-y. Oh, we can put lights on it. Fine. We just need to shoot. It's like this struck me that they did all the Excelsior scenes in like half a day. You know. Well, and do you, do you, do you want to know how cheap the sequence is? <laughs> if you go to if you go to second forty five. Uh, of the video and you look at the bald guy sitting in the background they didn't even have enough money to give him one of the turtleneck shirts underneath oh they were just like get in there just (laughs) sit there just just put on the red shirt and get back there dude and pretend to press buttons and (laughs) shut up like that (laughs) he's playing with a light bright you know he's putting the little pegs in there it is so clear that this sequence is so slapped together. I mean, there's all that negative space of black on the screens, and you're like, well, what are those? What's going on? Well, what's in that giant space behind the Asian woman? Like, is that, are there, is it just a blank screen? Are there screens that pop up? I don't think space so. Space screen. What's, space? I mean, what well, is going there's also on an, here? It's on just, that band around the top, above the screens, it, it makes me think that the, top of the bridge is even higher yeah because you never really right. see that that level above where even like on the enterprise and if you do it's very it has stuff there or it has texture this is just like a painted wall that i feel like it's at least seven feet higher right exactly do you want the thing that is amazing about this sequence though and you you can always get the bends from transitions this fast is that the sets especially Excelsior, just look, you know, they're cheap. They're super cheap. And then when you see the effects of the backing out and the inside of space dock and the weight of it and the scope of it, it's beautiful ILM shots intercut with these super cheap sets. And you forgive the super cheapness because the rest of the scene doesn't feel super cheap. It's the best music, the best effects. We've built up to this moment story-wise. So it's, of course... You know, it it this scene does this scene work better if they have a perfectly lit, beautifully designed Excelsior bridge that you see for three shots? Yeah, probably. Yeah. But the the scene still works anyway. And guys, oh, I have to I have to butt in for one second because I just checked something. We're wrong, or I uh-huh. was wrong. When he says Helm, the woman with the Dorothy Hamill haircut, uh, she turns around, so she is Helm. So what the hell is Miguel Ferrer? He's the he, he's actually the I believe he's the first officer. So he worked for OCP. Because <laughs> I'm looking at the I'm looking at the script and that's what it says. It says Styles says status and first officer who's uh-huh. Miguel Ferrer says all automates ready and functioning, automatic moorings retracted, all speeds available through trans warps drive with that smug yeah. little attitude. Well, now and navigation would be. It's, I think at this point they still called that navigation. So I guess for some reason, why would you have your first officer be navigator? Shouldn't he be standing where the Asian woman's standing? Yes. That's that's what I would figure. 
but or he was he should have been in the chair yeah. right when because the captain wasn't on the bridge well, yeah. good point there yeah but again we've spent more time thinking about this scene <laughs> than anyone involved with actually making this scene. i think we spent more time in the scene than they took to actually dress the set light it and shoot it i yes. mean that is true um but yeah. you know then you also go like paul i think you were saying you go from all of this garbage, other than the two performances, <laughs> to an unbelievably awesome shot of the Excelsior starting to take off, which is yes. great. I mean, just great. Slam back to uh, at least George saying, uh, 30 seconds to space doers. So, um, and then another amazing ILM shot, although where the hell is everyone? What, did someone go to the bathroom? I mean... Break like, time. What, That's what, the note I had. They, they, get, they get their mandated 15-minute break. The only know, guy you're, working you're the entire this. space dock is the guy clearing the tables at the restaurant. Everyone else is in bed. <laughs> Seems like you'd want a little bit of redundancy. In the security room here, I, I'm just saying it's like, do air traffic controllers go? Listen, I gotta, I gotta take a leak. Uh, I'm just gonna go. <laughs> Hope everything no one, works out. No one's scheduled to leave, right? No one's scheduled to leave, so they were. They probably thought they could take a quick, yeah. quick, quick, quick five. Yeah. He went down to, I, he went down to the vending machine, got himself a coffee and a donut. It'd be great if you saw the guy run into the set at this point, sit down, immediately start hitting buttons and everything. <laughs> But I, I mean, it, it, it's one of those where there was a choice made. And, and do you notice that they've got the, this is how cheap this movie is. They use the same chair for the Excelsior as the chair for um, the security there. You can see because if you look at the back, but then also they have the same uh, wraparound. Why would you need yep. the wraparound? Like they don't jump into trans warp drive mode. What, 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 why, why would sitting in that chair where you press a button to open and close a door, would you need the wraparound? And the answer is, this movie is cheap garbage from a production standpoint. And yet we watched it every other day. And we love it yeah. so. We love it. No, but I, I, it, it, this movie, I mean, the, all, of the, all of the stuff that I make fun of it for is also what I love it for. It is beautifully trashy uh emotionally compelling science fiction and really it's been more specific than that star trek this is this mm. would not this could not exist as battlestar galactica or or star wars or anything like that it is this is pure star trek and solar babies it, yeah it's it's uh it's really it's really great for that purpose uh and i think it's why it had such a big impact on on me and, and, and my brother, like when we saw this movie, we we went home and we wrote a version of Star Trek four. That was the first script that we ever wrote and the first script that it, it got me into writing and it got me into storytelling and it got me I just to figure out well how do you write some dialogue and how do you how do you write a scene and, and what would the story be and we, we came up with a story it didn't have whales in it but it was you know a klingon federation war and they were flying back in a klingon ship and kirk had just uh watched or had his son murdered by klingon so he was caught in the middle and the and the bridge crew had to kind of help him not uh fall into the darkness or or make the wrong decision so, I mean, there was a lot of 
Um, it was actually kind of a cool I'm, story when you think about it. Yeah. For a couple of 12-year-old schmucks living in the suburbs of Boston, you know, that idea of the conflicted Kirk flying back in a Klingon vessel while entering, while the the Cold War between the Klingons and the Federation was heating up, I, I to this day, think it's a pretty cool story idea. And I think, you know, maybe you should pitch it. Well, but I mean, but so there was that, and then there was all, and then the, what inspired <laughs> then the next thing is it was the first pilot that we wrote together, which was uh, a spin-off because we loved it so much, and we and we kept and off of I think I guess it was off of maybe it was off of this movie too that we we said that Sulu would end up as captain of no that I think we did that one after the six uh, okay so we, because we were, that was the last year we were living in Massachusetts. So that was, I don't mean to correct you no, no, on no, our, no, our no. unproduced pilots, but uh, that was, <laughs> we, we so wanted to have the, the, to figure out what our uh, finale was for, you know, Star Trek's two, three, we wanted our four. And after four, we were, we were floating. So we, our feet didn't touch the ground after watching four, that we thought the next logical step uh, was to give Sulu his own ship. And so, and the and the opening was him thinking he was getting the Excelsior, and he got this other ship, the Pegasus. That was more uh, like Reliant. And, it was kind of more like it was a, yeah. it was swifter and faster than. So he was disappointed, but then he was he was kind of excited, and then he had uh, Murphy. Uh, I think that that was his name, right? Murphy from the Naked Time, yeah, right? From the Naked Time. Um, was, or was it all right? Was it all right? It was whatever it was. It was stereotypically uh, uh, Irish. Um, was he singing Danny Boy? Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, all right, now I got to go to IMDb because I can't. I can't let it. I can't let it go. <laughs> um, but I mean, so Star Trek. Uh, so this movie, in a lot of ways, is uh, Riley. Uh, Riley. Riley. Right. Um, this movie <clears throat> started my my writing career and, and led in, in an indirect way over many years towards me writing Star Trek now. So this movie has so many um, warm and uh, positive feelings for me, even though I make fun of all of the silly production value. And the production value really is just a, a benefit, uh, I mean, just a result of having a TV producer in Harv Bennett who just he didn't know any better to be honest like that's his world was the six million dollar man and bionic woman and like those those were you put them on we got six days to shoot thing get it out there go kid go and that's that's what they do uh he was the one who put the um the recap at the beginning of this movie because he was like listen if we're doing another episode you got to put the recap in at the top uh but to to harv's credit though if you he made sure the mo- the direction the movies went in yes. was not over the top epic. But let's get back to distilling the character. But think about, you know, he co-wrote and produced Ratha Khan. And when you think about how many f- trilogies, if you take two, three, and four, how many trilogies actually stick the landing? Godfather didn't. Return of the Jedi didn't. Mm. I mean, there's so many, you know, felt like The Dark Knight Rises didn't. There are a lot of times you have a good one. Oh, an even better two, or like a, or a, a comparable two, and then a three. Like the only two that I can think of were the James Bond movies. The first one was good, the second one was better, third one was best, and the Toy Story movies, where Toy Story one, two, and three are all great yeah. movies. I'm really hard pressed to think of uh, a trilogy 
that stuck the landing as well as skipping ahead to I know it sounds weird to say a trilogy that stuck it better than Star Trek Four. It makes it sound like I don't quite understand what a trilogy is. <laughs> but Star Trek the Motion Picture it exists in its own nah, we're not gonna go that direction universe. I don't know where it exists in canon. I know where it exists in the canon in Paramount Pictures eyes in the garbage bin, but I think that the fact that he realized this is a character sci-fi film and we're all watching it and we forgive it because as i've said several times before this film is emotionally perfect if not structurally perfect yeah and it, it, it and 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 everything that works right about it works so right <laughs> like their performances here work so well and the reaction shots work so well and the music works so well and the effects work so well that you just go like whatever yeah so that stuff doesn't work who cares it, it's just it's, awesome and i mean yeah. awesome maybe a little strong but it's great <laughs> it's fun and and it's and then the emotional stuff whether it's kirk's son dying and his reaction or that final scene I, it kills me every time uh with 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 spock kind of to to the point where the actually paul i don't know if you remember the biggest cheer was him raising his eyebrow at the end and McCoy kind of... Oh, I think just by the end there, everyone was like, he's back. Yeah. The family's back and it, together. And, and that's... Yeah. When you... I mean, talking about sticking the landing, this movie's... The the last... I You know, from the time... Pretty much from this sequence on, this movie is almost perfect in my eyes. Yeah, this is the... This is almost, in some ways, the beginning of the movie, right? This is... Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Remind me, at this point, had the uh, Savick and Spock done the Ponfar yet? No, we haven't gotten there yet. No. Uh, there. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, baby. Okay. Okay. Do you so want to come back for that one, guys? No. <laughs> There's so many questions we have to answer. You can bring Tom Arnold to talk about that one. Okay, that is a brutal scene. <laughs> so, Ted, a question for you. So, uh, uh, you know, I love I love the story. You know that Star Trek Three seems like it was the, one of the you know the catalyst for you becoming a writer and ultimately you know now writing for Discovery um, is and there's already been with the episodes that are out there's been lots of Easter eggs in in the in the show so far that people have been you know hunting down and stuff and do you guys think they'll you know will there be Easter eggs that tie back to the films and not necessarily to the to the the TV shows. Uh, no. Can I even um, ask that? I, I don't know. Well, no, no. I mean, it's just that the the films are of a different um, uh, kind of company than we are. Um, so we we kind of stand. We stay away from a lot of the film stuff. Um, uh, but also, we want to be really careful about what we do from an Easter egg standpoint. Um, there's mm -hmm. a difference between fan service and fan porn. Um, and I, I, I think it's a fine line. Yeah, it is a fine line. And I, and I'll tell you this, I'm sure we're not always going to get it right, but, um, I will tell you that everyone in the room and I mean, everyone either respects Star Trek as much as a fan, um, or have been lifelong fans like me. I mean, I, I write with these two women, Erica, Lipholt and Bowie Kim, who um, uh, Bowie's from South Korea and Eric is from France, and they grew up on opposite sides of the world, loving Star Trek and science fiction, and 
they know it inside and out. Uh, Kirsten Beyer, who has written a whole lot of the Star Trek novels, like especially the Voyager novels, you know, New York Times bestselling ones for the past 20 years, she's in the room. She probably knows canon better than, well, certainly anyone from the Roddenberry camp. I mean, any, like, it's, it's, we, we, we love Star Trek. We live for it. We think about it. Um, we dreamed of being here. So I think everyone understands the importance of um, getting it right. We're not always going to get it right because sometimes there's other influences that come in or sometimes you just can't keep track of 51 years of canon. You know, mm. it's, it's yeah. hard. Uh, and, and by the way, one thing I will say it's not always easy. it's not always possible it's kind of like the bible where like that story doesn't line up with that story because it was never intended to line up but i remember one thing that you said and I, i'm sure a show like this and is similar to a show like supergirl they're very complicated shows with special effects and a lot of outside pressure and a lot of you know f- passionate fans and everything like that and then you've worked with supergirl and you worked with now on, on Discovery, but I remember one thing that you said to me, it was shot up in um, Toronto, most of it was shot up in the studios in Toronto, and you and I would talk when you'd come back, or you'd talk when you were in Canada, and despite all the, you know, the fact that it's a, a hard show to make and everything like that, one thing you kept saying to me, uh, especially when it started coming together, and you started seeing some of the episodes actually cut together, is you said to me, Paul, it feels like Star Trek, and I totally got what you meant by that that the like what we see in star trek 3 that emotionally it's in the right place emotionally it's respectful and that you will you understand that it isn't about ships opening fire at each other it isn't about ships blowing up it's about the human adventure and about what humans are doing and i i think that you know i thought i'm i'm slightly biased because my brother's writing and producing on it but i've been thrilled by what I've seen, and knowing that the two of us would be sitting in the third floor uh, with with our with our Star Wars toys and video cameras, coming up with the adventures of the USS Pegasus, <laughs> and now it's like, okay, you're now doing it with slightly more on the line than uh, us gluing together an Enterprise model. Uh, I just, it's it's the emotional sincerity is works. That's what makes this film work. Yeah, and. I, I will say just in response to that, I mean, I know that there are some people like, well, it feels different. It does, uh, but it's also because we're living in a bit of a different time and we're also doing different type of storytelling, which is uh, they're not standalone movies. In one sense, they almost reflect two, three, and four of Star Trek mm. in that they're telling this kind of overarching story. We try to make each episode have its own theme, uh, beginning, middle, and end. Um, but we are telling a 15-hour story. Uh, so, you know, you're going to have... Much like we're doing with this episode, so... <laughs> but you're just, you're just going to have to watch uh, the whole thing to understand what the whole story is. It's not... At the end of the episode, it's not a hard reboot and people don't forget that someone died in the previous episode or... You know, that's one thing about watching Sitting on the Edge of Forever. He has this incredible love in the Joan Collins character and then, boom, she's dead. And then the next episode, it's never like she's ever mentioned again. <laughs> Yeah, it's like it never happened. He never. Yeah. It doesn't change mm. his character or anything. And we're doing a different type of storytelling. No, well, we're, we're like I said, we're we're loving it so far, and uh, excited to see what's going to happen. And uh, yeah, thank you. Cool. 
Uh, all right, guys. Yes, we uh, we probably should wrap it up here. Unless you guys any 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 last thoughts on this minute of Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock? Uh, I hope. No, but Ted and I would like to read through the entire USS Pegasus script, and I have it. <laughs> page one: We see the stars. <laughs> We can uh, we can post that on the Facebook page if you want. Uh, I will say that I think this is one of the most iconic, exciting moments in all of Star Trek history and TV, movies, everything, uh, books, uh, and uh, I I love it every I, I love it so much, and uh, I hope someday to have something that maybe can be in the same category as this scene. It's 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 awesome. Agreed. All right. Uh, well, you know, we forgot to uh, ask you guys this on on, on Monday, if you wanted to, uh, before we before we head out. So do, you, do you guys want to share where they can find you? Uh, I guess we know where we can find you, Ted, with the project you're working on. But uh, do you guys want to share where they can find you online or uh, uh, projects you want to plug? Uh, I'm I have my podcast, which is Sully Baseball Podcast, and you just go to Twitter at Sully Baseball or find me on iTunes. Uh, I'm also the producer of a real crime podcast called Real Crime Profile. And that's available through Wondery and on TuneIn and iTunes. So if you subscribe to Sully Baseball or subscribe to Real Crime Profile and follow me on Twitter and you'll see a lot of the things that I write and post, including the baseball videos that I produce. And I am on uh, at Carter Hall, uh, spelled K-A-R-T-E-R-H-O-L on both Instagram and Twitter. And uh, you can follow me there, and I have lots of behind-the-scenes uh, pictures that I post uh, for uh, that I take during production of uh, Star Trek Discovery. And you can also probably get annoyed with uh, my political ranting uh, that I uh, do on there too. That sometimes gets me in trouble, but that's okay. All right, and uh, you can find us uh, on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. At Star Trek Minute is our handle on all of those. And, uh, yeah, guys, we'll be back again on Friday uh, talking about Minute 45 of Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock here at the Star Trek Minute. Bye now. <laughs>